Hello and welcome everyone to Conversations in Digital Learning, a podcast produced by the Digital Learning Collaborative, or more commonly known as the DLC. The DLC is a membership group dedicated to exploring, producing, and disseminating data, information, news, and best practices in digital learning. My name is Katherine Kennedy, and I'm your host for today's show. Before we get started, I'd like to share a quick disclaimer. We invite a variety of guests to join our podcasts. Their views are not necessarily representative of the Digital Learning Collaborative or its members. Today's podcast is focused on accountability and supplemental online learning programs. A little less than five years ago, the Michigan Virtual Learning Research Institute conducted a study to better understand the conversations surrounding accountability in K-12 online learning and to make key recommendations for moving the field forward in an informed way. That study was focused on Michigan, but included Louisiana, Texas, and Minnesota. As we revisit this conversation, we are bringing back Michigan and Texas and added in Wisconsin. Representing Michigan, we have Dr. Joe Friedhoff, who serves as the Vice President of Michigan Virtual. Kate Lockery oversees the Texas Education Agency's online learning initiative, the Texas Virtual School Network, and was responsible for developing and managing the state's first virtual public school program. From Wisconsin, we have Don Nordine, a former district administrator of a rural school district who is now serving as the executive director of Wisconsin Virtual School, a state-led supplemental online program for grades 6 through 12 operating out of an educational service agency since 2000. Thanks so much again for taking the time to be part of this podcast. Let's go ahead and jump in. So the first question, what does accountability look like in a supplemental online program? And the context for this question, there isn't the same accountability for single courses as compared to a full-time program or a high school. So how does that work in a supplemental online program? And whoever wants to jump in first can jump in. Well, why don't I kick us off? This is Joe Friedhoff from Michigan Virtual. You know, one of the things that I think about it and how it differs from full-time online learning is that many of the programs, the local programs that are being run have different populations that are being targeted by the district in their online, and they may use multiple vendors to address and serve the needs of those special populations. And so one of the things that means is that on almost an annual basis, these schools or districts are trying to figure out which provider is giving them the best service and it is addressing the needs of their students. And so unlike a, a full-time program that might have the content from the same provider for many years, school districts have the ability to kind of shift. They seem to be very price sensitive in that regard, and it depends on the group. So for instance, it tends to be the case if you need to get a kid to get credit for a course or to graduate. There's certain things that appear to be uh, in the factors as they determine uh, what they want out of that provider. And that may be different, for instance, than a school, uh, what a school is looking for if they're looking for an AP provider. So the other piece that I think about for a difference is that there's ability to share responsibilities. So we promote really heavily in Michigan that the local the local school has a great deal of responsibility for the on-ground support. And that's not really the equivalent in a FaceTime, but uh, a face-to-face environment. But really thinking about the mentor responsibilities or other responsibilities that the local school could provide. And then having clear delineations about what the online provider can 
can do. And in this case, is typically the online instructional aspects and coordinating with the local school or with the parents, with the student, providing feedback and courses. So they share responsibilities for accountability in ways that's different than, than a full-time program. This is Donna. I would just add that I agree with Joe about in a supplemental program, particularly a statewide one, that accountability piece does fall on the school utilizing the services as well as the service provider. And for that reason, I think there's a little bit of accountability or actually a great amount of accountability on the supplemental program too, to make sure that we have some assurances in place that make us accountable to like the quality of the experience. Therefore, you know, making sure that we're aligning to national standards for online quality and that that's an, a known entity that you're, these are the benchmarks that as a state program you reach to be accountable because you're setting the stage for the local school districts to say, you know, that, well, this is what our state is doing or our organization that's statewide and what quality means to them and what they do for their services, courses, students, teachers, and that is something that if we have a local program or using multiple providers, they can, like Joe was saying, compare and say that, you know, these are the benchmarks that we want to have to ensure that there is accountability for quality experience. Well, I'd like to echo some of what both Joe and Dawn said. I think you're absolutely right that it is very different between a supplemental program and a full-time program where you could have an accountability rating for an entire virtual campus. It's also, as Dawn was saying, it's a, it's a shared responsibility. So in Texas, for instance, we have tried to make sure that there's responsibilities put on students teachers, the district in which the student is enrolled, the course providers, and then certainly at the state level, their accountability measures as well, because it's exactly what you were saying earlier, Joe and Dawn, that we're setting the expectations that this needs to be a quality educational experience. It needs to be of similar rigor and scope as courses in the face-to-face situation. So there are all kinds of different things we can put in place. And certainly the core standards that Dawn was mentioning are key. In Texas, we have three sets of standards we use. Certainly the, the national standards, which also then acknowledges states need to make sure that their own state curriculum standards are met, as well as accessibility standards. So I think those kinds of standards on content, certain benchmarks that teachers have to meet, certain benchmarks that the online course providers and the instruction that's happening there has to meet are all key. Great. Thank you all for sharing your perspective on that. We'll move on to the next question. And I think that, Kate, you got a little bit into this already in terms of what does accountability in online learning how does it work in your state currently? And are there different stories depending on the different stakeholders that you talk to? And what are those stories? Okay. Yes, as I mentioned a minute ago, we do have accountability measures for all the the various players. So since the students are the heart of it, why don't we start with them? We do recommend that the 
district in which the student is enrolled have some kind of a, an agreement that the student will sign so that they know what they're going to be held accountable for, that they're expected to keep up with their schoolwork in the online course, just as they would in the face-to-face -face course, that they're going to uh, meet the timelines and the expectations of the course and, and do the work. And then at the state level, what we built in is if a student is still enrolled in the course after the grace period, after the drop period, then they indeed will receive a grade from the online teacher. And that then brings us to, well, what are the responsibilities of the district the student is enrolled in? They also have to sign an agreement with the Texas Virtual School Network. So while the student's agreement was the responsibility of the district and optional in that we don't require it, but we recommend it for the district itself. They are required to sign an agreement that spells out what we're expecting from them, what their responsibilities are. And that includes mentoring the student, monitoring their progress, that they're really progressing through the course as they should, and the provider of the course is providing the progress report so that they are given the information they need to know that the student is progressing. And they also have to agree that they're going to accept the grade and that they'll apply their own local grading policy, but actually transcript the grade at the end of the course. So those are some built-in agreements and responsibilities at the student and district level. But then there are also requirements for, for teachers. They have to be certified to teach that particular course and grade level. They have to meet certain professional development requirements so that they've been trained to teach effectively in the online environment before they start teaching courses through our Texas Virtual School Network. And then they're also required to do ongoing professional development and they serve as the teacher of record. The course providers also have to sign an agreement that spells out all of their responsibilities. They're responsible for providing and overseeing the instruction. And then we at the state level, in addition to those agreements, number one, our whole system is based on, from a funding point of view, a student's successful completion of the course. So the student can earn state funding if they successfully complete the course but not if they simply participate in the course and don't successfully complete it. So that's a real linchpin of accountability right there, as, as you can imagine. And we also have required that the courses be reviewed so that we make sure that they meet the course standards I mentioned earlier. So those are some of the key things that we have in place in Texas in our program. Joe or Don, did you want to jump in to talk about... Michigan or Wisconsin? I can um, refer to Wisconsin on this one. It, it Very similar to what Kate was saying about Texas as far as like the local accountability pieces and then dividing that into, you know, the types of really best practices, you know, students signing contracts that a student's going to get grade and be monitored. You know, there's a lot of stakeholders all circled around that student in the success of a program. So Wisconsin is very similar. Uh, we do not have that one big difference is there isn't any accountability as far as like a successful student completion is equated to certain funding. We have what's called open enrollment. 
in our state. And we have currently about 50 virtual charter schools besides the state supplemental program and everything local districts doing as well. So there are students that are, have student choice and choose to go to a virtual charter school or a school. So the accountability remains at the local school district. So if a student's going to utilize going to a virtual charter school, that charter school is accountable for that student and their success. And it's not tied to funding. Um, the funding travels per pupil revenue travels with the student to whatever school of their choice. So that does play into, and I think we'll get later into our conversation about some things that are really pain points in accountability, but just wanted to point out that that's one difference in Wisconsin is we don't have anything currently set up for success equals funding or not funding. Yeah, I think there's a quite a lot of overlap hearing. Uh, my colleagues talk about, you know, what it's like in Texas and in, in Wisconsin. Michigan has a lot of similarities. I, I'm going to, I'll go kind of a reverse level and I'll start at the top level and, and walk back down towards a more finer grain. So if we start at the state level, one of the things that maybe makes us a little bit unique is that the student performance of virtual learners is required to be reported to the state data systems by each of the local districts then that, that is true of not just the online courses that they take or the virtual learning courses that they take, but their entire record for that year if they took at least one course that was delivered virtually. And for those of you who are familiar with the Michigan Virtual Learning Effectiveness Report, it's that those data points that we use to help understand what the population for that particular year looked like in terms of performance. And so we, on an annual basis, Michigan Virtual, through its research institute, provides a report to the state and to stakeholders about how well that system is performing. And so that becomes itself a mechanism of accountability at the state level. At the local level, we have some safeguards in place, and this is a little bit unique, but in terms of maybe the requirement, but a lot of, a lot of school districts, a lot of states use something that's the equivalent of a mentor, it could be a facilitator, it could be a guide, but this, the purpose of this role is to be considered the boots on the ground for that district to be providing support to the, the student. You can kind of think of it as a sense of, we like to kind of envision a triangle in which the student is at the center of that triangle. And there are three key players who add support to that child. One is the online instructor. One is the parent or guardian for the child. And the other corner would be the, um, the mentor. And so that local level is for providing that mentor and the mentor responsibilities. And they can use that mentor and the performance of that mentor in that role for promotion and retention purposes. So that would be kind of a local decision. But if you're you know, really successful at your mentoring role, that can lead to more opportunities for you. The other piece is that Michigan is a course access state. I'm guessing many of your listeners are familiar with course access and what that means. But in Michigan specific policy, the state level explains or provides the local districts with reasons to deny an otherwise reasonable request. And some of those denial reasons are things like the child has failed a course in that same subject area in the last couple of years. So that's an accountability mechanism that the, the local district can use to say that they're going to prevent a future enrollment. And the other piece of it is that they can deny a request because of a concern about rigor or quality. Now, the caveat on that is that if it's blocked for one of those reasons, the school district is responsible for finding an alternative vendor 
that doesn't have that concern or, or rigor. Now, what that means then, obviously, is that the local district has a greater responsibility to understand the wider landscape of providers, supplemental providers, and the course offerings so that they can find a vendor that aligns with their, you know, with what they believe to be rigor and quality. And then another novel thing I haven't heard our, our colleagues talk about, I'd be curious about, Kate or Dawn, if you guys use this, but it, it is allowable in Michigan for a district to add additional requirements to what would ordinarily be the online course. So an example of that could be if a district has a policy in which everyone in the face-to-face courses sits for a common final, then they could also require students who, who try to take that course online to not only complete the online course, but to also sit for something like a district common final. At the individual level, Kate and Dawn have also talked about the notion of learner agreements. We think that's a good idea and suggest for that. In a course access environment, you know there's parent choice and student choice about which courses they wanna take. And so that's a level of, of individual accountability. Another one that I wanted to raise, and I don't think we've talked about this per se in some of the other venues that we've just, we've talked about accountability, but I think it's an interesting thing to consider accountability in self-paced environments, particularly in online settings, which they're often kind of described as any pace or any place. And there's an accountability that the individual student has to figure out how to work in that kind of environment that's typically not the case in face-to-face. So how are we helping students learn to be accountable in that new media? And we've seen from the data that students are more successful if they get going right away, right? If they, if they don't try to wait and they take time really seriously and they take pace really seriously. We've also seen the data show that students are more successful when they take fewer courses to begin with than if they take more. That individual level accountability can be important. And then finally, my colleagues have also talked about kind of how, how does a third party or a vendor think about it? Uh, I don't remember, Kate, if you shared, but I believe in your catalog and is true in Michigan is we report performance data. So how the courses performed in Michigan, we share the number of enrollments for that course. So anyone who's offering something in the statewide catalog that was available in the prior year, you have to share how many enrollments in the prior year and what the success outcome was. And and our success measure is the number of kids who earned 60% or more of the total course points. And my colleagues have also already talked about kind of, you know, quality reviews of courses like through QM or teacher certification requirements, or maybe not so much around teacher effectiveness ratings, but how your teachers fit into the state's teacher effectiveness system. That's also part of what the vendor looks at. I think what Joe just said about accountability at the individual level is a is very important one. And, and you asked Joe about what do we do to support that? And one of the things that some states are doing and that uh, we have done in the past and we're looking to have this again in the future is an orientation to online learning that students can access before they take an online course for the first time. And that seems to be really important in helping them understand what they're getting into, what to expect, and helping them learn how to to navigate within a course and, and manage their time and that, that sort of thing. So I think that kind of support is really, really important. And I'll just mention too, you know, Joe uh, did a good job explaining, you know, top down and a little shout out to Michigan Virtual 
Learning Research Institute has, you know, really put out a number of best practice case study types of guides that I know that our state has used extensively as resources to point out to schools that lead them to all these types of things that both Kate and Joe are talking about, the importance of a, you know, a student orientation and local policy for, or honoring local policy. Joe asked if we actually require anything, but our direction is typically if the local district prefers this or that based on their local policy, we'll do what we can to accommodate it. In the absence of them not coming up with maybe some good practices like a proctored midterm and final or password protected exams and things like that, we will do that automatically. But then there'll be districts that will say, you know, our students needs this flexibility and they can't necessarily come in at a proctor time. We'll honor that type of agreement. So treating each individual district and honoring their local practices, but at least starting at a point of where we're putting out there, this is a best practice or this is known to work really well with students. And again, Wisconsin doesn't have a lot of formal reports on how kids are doing with online because we have so many things going on between online blended, local policy, individual districts. But, you know, we volunteer in a way to report each year course completion, what are the high enrolling courses, what's the average grade, what's it like credit recovery versus AP, what's the average AP exam, those types of data points that again, just show transparency in our efforts to be better and improve each year. Again, modeling for schools that are, want to do this on their own or have to make choices of different pathways for their students. One of the things that I wanna follow back up on because each and every one of you in your roles and in the states that you serve have talked a lot about the amazing pieces of accountability that you have put in. And what I'd love for you to talk about is something that Dawn brought up, which are the pain points. So what do you see as the pain points of where you guys are at right now? What's not working either policy-wise, local, state, national, the district level pieces, or the online provider pieces, or anything in between that? Well, I'll, I'll jump in on that one. Um, <laughs> I think the pain points are different depending on the audience, as you might um, expect. The, the pain points from a state point of view, and I think national as well, is that we don't really have good data that's common amongst us, and we don't have the volume and longevity of data to really understand how things are different in terms of the results of uh, an online learning experience versus face-to-face. And and so we're often comparing apples to oranges and asking the wrong questions. (laughs) And so we don't have a clear idea of what is behind making a successful experience depending on the needs of the student, the demographics of the student. And as Joe was saying a little earlier, we don't have information about looking at the, for instance, we know mobility and the length of enrollment that a student 
brings to online courses. Have they taken that course before and failed it twice and now they're for the third time taking it, but first time online and yet we're expecting somehow this to be the magic bullet? So I, I think we're, we're just not at a point where we are clearly asking the right questions, gathering data and that's common to us all and can give us a clear picture on this that's not apples to oranges. Joe or Don, did you want to jump in next? So one of the things I think about when, um, and I'm, I'm guessing, you know, there will be differences between the states, but uh, I, I, I'd love my colleagues to kind of weigh in because I think that regardless of whatever the policies are in, in the different states, you can kind of use a classification category of district mindsets to predict how well they're going to perform in their online, you know, in terms of getting students to be successful in online courses. And what I've seen or what we've seen in Michigan is that districts that are, have a compliance mindset you know, they're looking at the letter of the law and they're trying to figure out what they're doing to actually, you know, check the boxes to make sure they're in line with the legislation or the law or whatever the other policies are. Those districts tend to struggle. The districts that have a competency-focused mindset, and that is kind of more of a spirit-based, so why does the law or why does the policy exist, you know, and what are we trying to get toward? Those districts Excel. And so let me try to illustrate it in this way. A compliance mindset might say, well, in order to graduate, a student has to take an online course. So I'm going to make sure you have an online course. And when I get it on your schedule, check the box is done. I've done my duty. A competency-focused district is looking at it and saying, by the time a student graduates, we want to make sure this child is competent with online learning, can use that medium if they go off to college or in their jobs or for other lifelong learning skills. So what's the best thing I should be providing that child right now and that experience I can give them right now to help move them along that spectrum? And we see really kind of strong performances and differences. And there's a lot of compliance mindset, especially when new policies or other things, new changes come out. And that I think is a pain point for for people to deal with. A second one is that our policy in Michigan, at least the intention around that was really to drive students who wanted to move farther faster and allow them to go at their own pace. That was really kind of one of the driving forces. But I'll say that the pain point of it is that it's, it's been typically leveraged more for credit recovery and for struggling students. So that's kind of a, a bit of a disconnect between intentionality and then, you know, how it's been applied or, or how it's played out. Another one that, and this is one I think I'm, I'm assuming is probably going to be true in other states and is really a major issue for our field, is that online learning is really meant to resolve some of the issues with locational challenges or poverty. So you've heard kind of a, a saying, well, you know, a child's zip code should not determine their education or a child's SES, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't determine whether they get access to a quality education. And the promise of online learning or the potential of online learning is that no matter where you are, we can bring high quality content and we can bring high quality instruction to uh, those children so that they, uh, from an, from an equity standpoint, can have a, a really great learning education. And what our data suggests, and when I say our data, I mean the state of Michigan's data in that effectiveness report, is that we continue to still have big gaps between students in poverty and students who are not in poverty. 
And by big, I mean we see 20% performance differences in, in the success of, or what we call our, the pass rate. So there's about a 49% pass rate if you're in poverty versus a 69% pass rate of courses if you are not. So we've got ground to work on and a place we need to move as a field. And then this is just a really Michigan-specific pain point, but that mentorship component where we have students on the ground, that the state has kind of has a little bit of a cumbersome way of using that mentor role to try to count the student in membership through a two-way interaction log that's collected over a four-week period. So there can be some kind of state-level challenges with working with the local district that are well-intended, but that creates a pain point and a disconnect between what the local schools, how they could best support students, and then what the state is saying. I think that's one of the things that just sprang to my mind as you were talking, Joe, and that you just mentioned at the end is a pain point that I don't think is specific to uh, your state is how much it varies in terms of the local support given to the student. So I think a lot of districts don't understand how critical their role is, that boots on the ground that you were talking about for the the mentor. So they may think, well, you know, sign my student up for the online course, the instructor's going to take care of things, and they leave the student on their own instead of providing that support, not understanding their role in it. And while we don't in Texas have that state-level requirement that you were talking about that's specific to your state as a, a pain point, we do still have, when you look at the success of different providers, it could be impacted heavily, not so much about that they're not doing to the nth degree everything they can to, to make sure the student is successful, but if for a particular school district, they're not providing the local support to the student, then they can have tremendously different success rate for a particular school district they're serving. So that can really harm then their overall picture for success in the course that they're offering. So that local support of students is really a pain point that I think we all have in common. And I'll just add, just taking a little bit a different approach at a pain point after watching how online learning has kind of developed just the the whole utilization of it statewide and nationally. And then from my perspective as have been in, in a district where it was rural and we needed distance education when online learning came available in the early 2000s, you know, we, we jumped on it. But our state, Wisconsin, really had gone through some really troublesome years as far as people understanding what it meant for a student to be online and how best to serve that student. And parallel to that at the same time were actually funding issues. So it set up a competition really between districts, which resulted in districts putting up a virtual charter school in an effort to retain or even attract students into their district so that they could receive that funding and, you know, and be sustainable and be competitive with their neighbors. As time has gone on here, the competition, I'd say, has become a little more friendly because we it's very simple in Wisconsin to put out your shingle and be a virtual charter school. At the same time, we have several for-profit companies in our state running charter schools, that we have the state supplemental program, and we have all the things the local districts are doing. There's huge accountability pain points 
with that many kinds of programs. And if the underlying reason is more about competition and funding and not a concern about students, which initially was really what it looked like in the landscape, from my opinion, early on, that caused a lot of problems for all of us across the country in what does online look, look like that's quality? Is it successful? Today, you can still pull up any online source and find negative comments about these types of opportunities from kids. And it really comes from this, I thought, in I saw in our state, this pain point of competition. As we've gotten more knowledgeable about online learning and best practices and success, Kate mentioned earlier the importance of data. I know research is near and dear to Joe's heart, too, that these things have as more of this is available, that accountability piece is starting to offset some of these negative things about online learning, which was more about at one time funding and now more about student success. We still have to get over some hurdles about graduation rates, you know, when a student leaves a public school and has been unsuccessful and chooses a virtual school their senior year and they're behind a whole year, and now the virtual school gets the ding on the state report card for an unsuccessful completer if that happens. And it happens enough, which just adds to that fire or fury that online learning's not good. Well, there's many, many good things about it, but the more data, the more research we have, the more best practices will help some of these pain points that we've all been addressing. Well, and to follow up on that idea of the data, needing the data. Certainly, I think the folks that are working on the national level or even within a state that are doing some excellent research, but if they if the state doesn't have the authority to collect certain data, then it's very hard to get when you're talk, having to go school by school and try and, and get that. And you can't just at the state level have the data at the ready and States can't necessarily do it, collect the data, if they don't have that legal authority to do it. So um, I know that's something we struggle with here in Texas is there's some data that we simply cannot collect because the legislature hasn't given us the authority to collect. So we can't contribute in that way to the greater understanding of what's working and why why it is or it isn't. Kate, that's a really good point. Um, Joe, is there anything that you can share in terms of, because you do the effectiveness report in Michigan, is there anything that you can share about how you have gotten that data and how you've worked through those? Well, in in our particular case, we are asked by our Michigan legislature to to be able to produce that report on an annual basis, and we're funded to do that. Um, So I think the the key aspect of it is developing um, good, strong relationships with those people who are in positions of power to be able to make those data requests occur. And, you know, it's it's a balancing act. I think policymakers in particular are really nervous about adding additional requirements on schools for reporting because there is a lot, you know, at least in our state, there's a lot that schools need to be reporting to the state and they want to make sure that there is a return on that investment. And so the argument that we try to make is that the data that are being collected in Michigan on virtual learners are actually action is being taken on it. It's being looked at, it's being pulled together in in a really systematic way, and then it's being 
put back out for use so that the schools can improve, so that the students have better learning opportunities. And so if you can kind of trace it, that entire cycle between making it not just about data collection, but on system improvements, then I think you have a more compelling uh, conversation. And I, w- and I would, I guess I would say, you know, even though this, you know, not necessarily a, po- a political point, but I would say we've, we've been successful with this, whether the Democrats are in control or whether the Republicans are in control, it's not really a one side of the aisle or not. I think both of them are just looking for, you know, what's going to help Im- improve schools and these systems. And if there's policies that exist that they want to see, you know, such as, of course, access, then it is not that far of a step for them to be able to say, so how, you know, how can we show you how well it's working, help us do that in in the kind of the least amount of lift that it requires for schools and give them the greatest amount of value to improve. I think that is a really key point. We can't uh, add on to the, the lift, the heavy lift that the schools are already operating under in terms of reporting data. So that I think you're, you're right, Joe, that's really critical to keep in mind. How do we do it with the least impact on increasing workload at the district level? Thank you all so much for sharing your experiences with these pain points. Um, Because you are all in this, seeing these issues and opportunities on a daily basis, what are some of the possible solutions that you've thought through to help mitigate some of these pain points? One of the things we've been talking about is the importance of that student support. So, trying to make sure that there is, at the very least, an orientation to online learning that is really well designed, available online to anyone who wants it free, would be, I think, one of the ways to start supporting not only students, but districts who want to better support their students. So the orientation that would not only be available then to students who are going to take a course, but also to the educators around them who are trying to support them so that they too are learning more about what this experience is going to be like for students. And then training, again, that would be available online for free at any time any any school wanted it, mentor training. If I'm a good mentor, what does that look like? How would I do it? What what are the important things to keep in mind? So that that kind of support, I think, would go a long way. In Wisconsin, one of the things that I think, and this is available to actually any school that might be planning, you know, having resources available. And I mentioned earlier some of the guides that are coming from Michigan have been really, really helpful. Well, another additional resource that our we have a collaboration in Wisconsin called the Wisconsin Digital Learning Collaborative, and it's a partnership between our program, Wisconsin Virtual School the Department of Public Instruction and the Wisconsin eSchool Network, a consortium of schools that have online learning programs. With guidance from researchers, we have helped with what's called a planning guide for quality. And we think that one of the things districts need most or schools when they are planning, whether they're going to use the state program do something locally developed or virtual charter is to really have a good process in place for thoughtfully planning how they're going to provide online and or other types of blended learning initiatives for their schools. So we, we've shifted our efforts to do what we can. Like Kate said, you know, providing, you know, access to free resources, student orientations, 
workshops, trainings, online courses, any anything that we can do to help the leadership and planning teams. Um, we've been trying to do those types of efforts, but having a really a process in place that can be shared with schools where they ask themselves some critical questions along all the planning stages. You know, what? why are we doing this? Who's it for? Who needs to be involved? All that leading up to finally eventually evaluating your program will be key. It's just a, getting the boots on the ground and getting it out there where districts need to really step back and take that time and that careful planning, I think, is one of the solutions that will help a lot of the issues we're having. So for me, I think um, if I get really practical and kind of deal with like the, a local implementation, what I think my advice would be around, you know, improving online programs. There's a, there's a handful of things that come to mind. The first thing I would say is play to students' strengths. So what we see in the data are that typically the best students are getting the most support for their online courses and struggling students are getting the least. And that support could be both in the local, but also, for instance, there are a lot of like teacher lists or really teacher light credit recovery solutions. And yet the AP, you know, courses or the IB or some of the more advanced or even just core courses, you know, tend to have the instructional supports. But those things cost more money and some schools aren't investing in it. And, and so I think you need to flip that. You need to you need to be providing the students um, who are struggling with the most amount of support, and those students who really don't need it. You know, maybe that's an area where you could look at reducing what they need in terms of supports. But the scenario I give or I like to share is, you know, in Michigan, if you're the average online learner passes seven out of their ten face-to-face courses. So if we envision that I'm a student who walks into a counselor's office and I'm seeking advice about my courses and what courses I want to take next, you know, maybe I got an A in English, but I failed mathematics. When we have this conversation in in counseling offices across the state, the basic premise is you don't mess with success. So even though I aced English and I might be really strong in that, that's what I'm going to get face to face. And the, the course in mathematics that I, you know, I just failed that's the one that they're more likely to say, well, let's move that online. And, and there's some rationality to it, right? Let's try something else. So in a best case scenario, it's let's try something else. But I think especially with new or novice online learners, to the extent that you can play to their strengths more often, give them the English online because you're playing to their strength, and then double down and really support the child, maybe reducing class size or something else to help them in mathematics and get them up to speed. The next piece here is that we've seen through the data that fewer courses to begin with is a better approach. So students who take one to two courses in an academic year outperform those who take three to four and those who take five and six. So especially if they're new and they haven't developed the skill set, hold them accountable by limiting the number to, you know, just one or two until they show that they can be successful in the environment. The next advice would be to invest in high touch. When we talk about online programs, you know, we may talk about policies, but we often talk about technology, especially as school districts are planning for it. You know, what do I need in this LMS? How do I get the courses and so on? But really, a a large amount of uh, what we see in successful programs are those who invest in people who care about the child and have close contact with them, whether that's that mentor, whether it's developing that relationship with the online instructor, whether it's the role of the parent. That triad of support that I talked about before needs to be really intentional and see that as a critical part of the solution. 
And then lastly, I'll, I'll move over and just give an option for online providers. So I'm going to say online providers need to be really bold and they have to think about limiting their off-label use. And so by this, I mean there are um, different products or different uh, potentially you know, just users of a product that don't implement it the way that you think it needs to be implemented, right? They might cut corners on something. They, they, you may expect them to be delivering a certain part of their agreement. So we talked about learner agreements, but you know, if you expect your product to be successful, as long as A, B, and C are put into place, and you know another provider or the people who are using your product or service are cutting corners on B and C, then I, I say be bold. You need to walk away from those relationships in those ways so that they're not kind of using your product in an off-label use and we get better success. That can be a particular challenge for providers because it could be bringing in money that helps them stay afloat or adding to a profit line but it's not in the best interest of kids. And we need to kind of end some of those practices where those corners are being cut. I guess just one last thing I might add is as we're trying to develop different accountability measures that are really going to give us a clear picture here is make sure that we're focusing on those factors that are actually within the school's control when we're holding the school accountable, for those things that we're holding the school accountable. Make sure that we really have isolated it down to those things that they have control over. And then do the same for the different audiences that we're talking about, building some things in for each of the stakeholders that really are within their control. So, What have been those pleasant surprises where some of these pain points, solutions, and or opportunities have played out in unintended ways? I'll say that, you know, call it whatever you want, global warming or just the weather cycle of history. But I think that the pattern that has happened the last year, not only in the Midwest, but I think across the country, that resulted in schools missing quite a few days and we still are counting days to some degree or instructional minutes which is another pain point to talk about sometime but our state all of a sudden there was a lot more interest from school districts that particularly those who had one-to-one device initiatives for a number of years I think their eyes were open to like you know we could do some virtual learning time And it really, I think it's started opening up more districts' eyes to the possibilities, how they could think differently, not only for that, but for maybe professional development for their teachers, doing more of a a virtual approach or blended approach. So whether the weather was the spearhead that brought about a pleasant surprise, our state has really looked at other states have have a pathway to virtual learning time and we've incorporated some of those things and planning and resources for schools. And then I think I mentioned earlier competition, you know, just amongst schools, it, it exists. But I would say that in a way it's become a friendly competition as well because I think having, knowing that there's competition for your students or for quality education, parents have more choice than they've ever had It's actually another pleasant surprise that school districts are having moments of like, wow, we probably need to start doing something to provide more flexibility or personalized learning for students. So both, I think, are 
have been pleasant surprises out of some of the pain points that we've experienced in Wisconsin. And I'm sure we're not too different, my colleagues or other states. So I'll, I'll jump in and say, you know, one of the pleasant surprises that we had when course access law was first passed is that in subsequent years, the legislature has taken steps to revise it and improve it as we've lived it. And I think, you know, how hard it is to like get policy changes through, especially at a statewide level. But the fact that we've been able to live with it and adjust it. So I'll give an example. In the first year that the uh, legislation had passed, the courses were open to students who were in grades five through 12. And one of the things, one of the lived experiences that we had was, well, you know, in a lot of fifth grade classrooms in Michigan, they are not, you know, English isn't taught the same hour of the day every day. And so at the high school level where it's kind of broken that way, it's easier to find how you can integrate the child's, you know, online course. But if it varies from time to day or it's all integrated in that classroom, it can be really difficult. So in subsequent years, the change was to move it to 612, but to then allow school districts the ability to say yes, if it was for K-5, as an example. That ability and willingness to iterate and improve the policy and the practices over time, I think has been a pleasant surprise. And then, you know, we've been talking a lot about online or virtual learning, but one of the pleasant surprises is how online and blended learning opportunities can actually positively impact face-to-face teachers. So there's a lot of teachers who now are having the opportunity with the growth in online to teach online. And in the supplemental cases, you know, they may have full teaching load in their brick and mortar building, and maybe they teach a section or a couple of sections online, either through their school or through another provider outside of their regular work. And what we hear, not infrequently, is that as these teachers are being exposed to online and virtual learning opportunities and teaching, it's helping to transform what they do in their face-to-face classrooms. And it's energizing them for what they're doing as a regular classroom teacher. And so the implications of the online learning policy is actually helping to transform the face-to-face classroom, I think is a pleasant surprise. Well, and to take that in a slightly different direction, uh, but the same idea of how is the, are these opportunities for online learning impacting what's happening in the face-to-face classroom, one of the things that's a pleasant surprise that we're finding that our schools are doing is with the increased interest and, and emphasis on career and technical education, there's a shortage in our state of teachers who have certification in those areas, but there's a great interest in taking those courses. So one of the things we're finding is our schools will use our CTE or career and technical education courses that we're offering online to then leverage the local resources they have so that their CTE credentialed instructors are teaching the higher level CTE courses that are extremely hands-on. You know, they, they're going to go work on that automobile in the shop and get their hands on it. So in, they're using the online courses for some of those introductory and less intensive hands-on courses as a way of leveraging their existing local CTE teacher while making those CTE opportunities widely available to students. So that's one of the things that we certainly hadn't 
expected, but that's been a, a real boon to schools across the state. And on a completely different topic, whereas initially there was some resistance to the idea that the online courses had to be reviewed. Why are we holding online learning to a higher standard than we hold the face-to-face -face instruction? We don't have a requirement that the state look at our local face-to-face -face courses and curriculum and, and bless them. So why are we holding that, the online courses, to that standard? So there was a lot of resistance at first, but what we have found over time is that we've broken through that resistance and both the course providers and if they have a third-party vendor, the vendors have come to see that their courses wind up being improved. So they've actually been supportive of the idea of the review process and supportive of the results that have mean that there are higher quality online courses as a result of the course standards and the course review requirements. And I guess the last thing I would mention is because of the requirements that we have uh, in law and as part of our course standards, there's so much more attention being paid to accessibility. How do we serve students with special needs successfully in the online environment. That wasn't something that folks were even paying attention to initially. But now, through the different standards set and requirements that states are having and through a, a more of a national awareness that, oh, wait a minute, online courses also need to be designed in a way that they are accessible to students. So I think that's been a wonderful thing to have so, so much stronger a focus on accessibility. And I think, you know, as a kind of last minute comment, I would say when people think about accountability, they tend to think about it as something that's being done to them or something that they're doing to somebody else. And I think if they can kind of own that and internalize it and say accountability is about holding ourselves accountable to what we want to achieve, point it internally instead of externally, we would yield better results. Thank you all so much again for taking the time to share your expertise and experiences regarding accountability and supplemental online programs. Uh, we hope to have you back on again very soon. Thanks. It's been my pleasure. Appreciate the opportunity, Catherine. Thank you. Really enjoyed having this time with colleagues and appreciate the opportunity as well. From all of us at the Digital Learning Collaborative and Evergreen Education Group, thank you so much for listening. Let's continue the conversation on Twitter at the DLCEDU and at the DLC's Digital Learning Annual Conference. Learn more about the DLC at digitallearningcolab.com. We'll be back soon with another episode of Conversations in Digital Learning. Enjoy your day.